my um, my printer would not print. Um, so I had to bring my computer here because I want to talk about a sutta. Um, so some of you may never read suttas uh, in the Dhamma, but, and some of them are pretty archaic and boring and, and you know, they're just kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's sort of like reading a science novel or something because they can go into great detail about one little thing. And some of them are long and drawn out that repeat a lot of the same language over and over and over. But there are many, many, many suttas that tell stories. And there are many, many, many uh, suttas that explain things. And um, you can read the sutta uh, at one point and uh, understand it one way. And you can read it again at another point and completely understand it a completely different way. So I used to just put in words in the search engine at uh, uh, access to insight and it would pull up all these suttas and I would just start reading them. And the ones I liked, I'd print them out, keep them, read them more. But the ones I didn't like, I kind of left those behind. But I'm saying that because there is a difference between uh, approaching the Dhamma from your own understanding and approaching the Dhamma trying to see, feel, or connect with something that a teacher says. So a teacher can say something, a friend can say something, and you can try your best to fit your understanding into what they say, and it doesn't always work. But if you begin to use what a teacher says or what a friend says or something you hear in a Dhamma talk, if you begin to use that as a, let me go check that out and see what that really means to me, then this uh, Dhamma and what it is, it gets very expansive. It gets very, very close to home as to what it is that we're trying to do here. And it's not, we are not trying to make our lives better. That's why I gave the talk last time. And uh, we're going to call this talk part two. Because last week it was about looking at this word dukkha, which in Pali, dukkha is the Pali word. And in English, we translate it to mean um, uh, suffering or dissatisfaction, disease. And I hate that. That's what I was saying last week, because it gives us this impression that somehow or another, the whole practice is centered around um, suffering. Because, you know, the Buddha said, I, I come to teach, uh, I teach one thing, dukkha and the end of dukkha. So it's as if the only thing we talk about or the only thing we uh, deal with is suffering. And of course, I'm going to spend the whole talk talking about suffering. So, but if you, if you look at it from the standpoint of 
the difficulties of life and all the mess that we have to deal with, then it does have this air of, it's like a downer. It's like the, I remember I had a monastic friend. I, I mean, he's still my friend, but I, 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 I would get around him and I would be so happy, mostly because I loved hanging out with him. But inevitably, he would mention, careful with that excitement, Tori. It leads to dukkha. I, I, I am just excited about being around you. And I thought when he said that, he was saying, don't get excited. That's what it sounds like, right? Don't get excited because it leads to dukkha. That is not what he was saying. What he's saying is that when we don't pay attention <coughs> to where our minds are going, then the when that excitement drops away, I won't see it happening. And when the excitement, the, the, the shift happens, the change happens, I'm going to be like, oh, what happened? Now everything's all messed up. It's because I don't see this kind of wave that I'm living in. And so especially when we get around excitement and good things, we can completely lose ourselves and forget all about the reality that this is temporary. It's not that it's not enjoyable. It's temporary. And so there will be a turn at some point and it won't be so exciting, won't be so happy. And there's a sutta that the Buddha talks about this kind of understanding that if we begin, what I want to, what I want to share today is the ways that dukkha, that we can begin to see dukkha as a doorway. So we can see where we actually have this sacredness about difficulties in our lives and how we could see it. So there's a sutta that many of you probably already know, but I'm sure there are some of you that don't know. And it's two versions, and I'm going to read the version that I like. There are two versions. One version calls, it's called the arrow, and one version is called the dart. But I like the um, arrow version. And so what, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but what the Buddha is doing is there's a group of monks, so I'm going to call them practitioners. They go to the Buddha, and they're talking to him about, uh, I guess, dukkha, whatever, just like we're sitting here talking about it. And the Buddha says that, um, he says an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person. I really love that. Sometimes he calls us uh, a regular worldling. So a worldling is also a sweet term, but he, this time he calls us a run-of-the-mill person. So an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person feels feelings of pleasure feelings of pain, and feelings of neither pleasure nor pain. A well-instructed disciple of the noble one, let's just call that being a practitioner. So a practitioner also feels feelings of pleasure, 
feelings of pain, feelings of neither pleasure nor pain. And he asked these monks, these, you know, practitioners, so what's the difference? What's the distinction? What distinguishing factor is there between someone who is a practitioner and someone who is just a run-of-the-mill person? This, this distinction is what it is we're looking for. There is this, none of us, I don't care whether you practice Dhamma all day long, every day, you go in the monastic world, you give up your whole life, you're just Dhamma, Dhamma, Dhamma all the time. That's a lot like me, but okay, you could be like that. We're still going to have pain. We're still going to have pleasure. And we're still going to get bored, neither pleasure nor pain. We are going to live and exist in samsara the same way someone who doesn't practice So what's the difference between all this practice and what does that have to do with the cessation of dukkha? So he says, this is how he explains the distinction between the two. He says, when touched with a feeling of pain, a run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, laments, beats their breasts, becomes distraught. So they feel two pains, both the physical pain they feel and mental. Just as if they, as just as if someone were to shoot a person with an arrow and right afterwards shoot that person with another one so that they would feel the pains of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with the feeling of pain, the um, run-of-the-mill person feels this grief, sorrow, laments, and becomes distraught. So they feel two pains, physical and mental. Um, and as we are touched by that pain, we are resistant. So this Resistance, obsession regards to painful feelings obsesses them. And touched by that painful feeling, they delight in sensual pleasure. They delight when it's going to be gone, when I'm getting rid of this pain. So what he says is, sensing a feeling of pleasure, they sense it as if they are enjoined with it. Sensing a feeling of pain, pain, they sense it as though they are joined with that. And sensing a feeling of neither pain nor pleasure, they sense it as though they're joined with it. This, he says, is called, um, this is what uh, brings birth, aging, and death. It's what causes the sorrow, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs. They are enjoined, I tell you, with suffering and stress. So last week, we talked about these five areas in which uh, we get trapped in this. um, uh, It's the nature of dukkha within these five areas, both uh, the fact that we birth age and death and everything comes into being, ages and dies and starts all over again. The sorrow lamentation, grief, and despair, 
that we um, have to put up with things we don't want to put up with and we lose things that we want to keep and we don't get our way. This is the nature of where dukkha arises out of. So when a person experiences any one of those five things, they feel enjoined with it. There's this immediate, both the felt sense of that pain and then the subsequent almost immediate mental thinking about it. And that is this enjoining of the two. But a practitioner who is um, a practitioner themselves, they are also touched by a painful feeling, but they are not resistant. They may not like it. It is painful, but they're not resistant. Um, And they don't begin to immediately wish for something pleasurable instead. Um, And because of this, they are disenjoined from the painful experience, disenjoined from the pleasurable experience and disenjoined from the neither pleasurable or uh, painful. And this disjoined perspective, this disjoined uh, relationship with this uh, first dart of pain, um, this is what keeps us from suffering and stress. So that's the distinction he made between the two. And so I've been trying, I mean, I've read that sutta a long, long, long time ago. Many of you have read it. Many of you might be hearing it for the first time. And there's always this kind of thought that's like, oh, oh, I don't want that second arrow. I I don't want to, I want to just be with the first arrow. But if you actually try to be with just the first arrow, it is very, very difficult to just skip over that mental. It's, it's, it seems to run, they, 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 they run hand in hand. So several years ago, I found another sutta that's, that I'm not going to read this one. I'm just going to tell you what it points to. But this sutta helped me begin to see what that second arrow looks like. And I could begin not to prevent myself from the immediate second arrow, but to see when I am enjoined, when I've squished the two together, both the physical and the mental, and I can begin to see how to separate those two out. So there, if you try to say, okay, I'm not going to feel the second arrow, that might be a little complicated because the two kind of, They co-arise together. The enjoyment, I realize, though, is how we relate to that mental. And this is what I want to talk about. In this idea that dukkha could be almost like coming into the presence of God. It's that sacred. When you begin to see this enjoining, you are actually at the doorway 
for separating these two out. And this distinction that the Buddha was making is completely possible. It's not so much possible, I think, to keep the second arrow from happening, but it is possible to begin to see the second arrow in its existence and disentangle the two together. So the sutta that I found was a sutta where uh, he talked about seven obsessions. And these seven obsessions are where I think the mental proliferation is around pain. And, and so we can actually see ourselves obsessing over something. And that is how we know I'm in the second arrow and I can begin to work on that obsession. And then the first arrow, we allow it to be. So the first one is sensual passion. So what that means is we are always on the lookout for pleasing. We always want to feel pleasant. We are, we become obsessed with how we feel and whether or not we feel pleasurable. And when we feel some unpleasantness for any reason, I mean, it's not even just the felt sense. I want to make sure we're clear that it's not just feeling pleasing. We want to see pleasing things. I want, I want the sun to be out. And it's all beautiful. I don't want to see any trash. Like my neighbor, I think that guy just collects stuff just to put it in his yard for junk. I just don't think he, I think he's like creating a junk garden outside. Because, I mean, it's like there's just stuff there outside in his yard. And I hate it. So I always have my blinds just up so I don't see it. And then if I put it down, I'm always obsessing over, he should clean that up. He should clean that up. This is the obsession because I see something I don't like. And then the mind begins to obsess over it shouldn't be this way. It should be better. It should be cleaned up. It should be all organized and everything should be structured right. And so we get obsessed with things to be beautiful. We want to hear. I don't want to hear the construction sounds. I want it to be the little birds outside. That's okay. But even if the birds like at the spirit rock, the swallows, at the teacher village, they have claimed that as their, their land. And so even though we put up all these little things to try to get them little birds to not come around, they still come around. They, that's their land. And they sit on the roofs and look at you. They sit in the eaves and they, you go into your room and they're just sitting up on the top of the eaves like, yeah, this is my home. They make their nest there. And at Three o'clock in the morning, the babies begin to scream. 
And they don't stop screaming. It's not like these little tiny birds. I think they're swallows. I don't know what they are. They're just about this big. They're not very big birds. But so they can't carry a lot of food in the mouth. So they go out, they get their food, they give it to the babies. They're still screaming. They go get some more. They come back. They're still screaming for like three to four, four thirty in the morning. They are screaming for food. That I like to hear the birds, but swallows at three o'clock in the morning. I'm not, I'm not feeling that. I get very angry. So what happens is I hear it. Don't like it. Wake up. And then there's this mental proliferation that begins. Shouldn't be like that. Shouldn't be like that. And we obsess over wanting things to be lovely, beautiful, pleasing. That's what this is. So if you begin to hear the mind obsessing over it shouldn't be like this, that tells you right then. You are in the second arrow that it shouldn't be like this is completely unnecessary because it is like this. So all that mental papancha around how it should be is really, it's like extra. It's unnecessary. That is the nature of where dukkha is at. You don't necessarily have to like getting woke up by the birds at three o'clock in the morning. But there is nothing I can do to change that because those birds own those eaves. And Spirit Rock has tried to do all the little things to chew them away. But I've been teaching there now for about Three years, and I got to tell you, they are not going anywhere. They own those buildings. They own that land. And they and a whole bunch of them will come and fly around when we come up there like, yeah, you want to say something? You want to do something about it? There's nothing to be done. So instead, when you hear yourself obsessing over something, wanting it to be better, wanting it to be nicer, kinder, fix it. That's when you want to begin to see this is dukkha. This is what the Buddha was pointing to. This not accepting the moment as it is, especially when you can't do nothing about it. Second area. I better move along a little bit here. This is the resistance. I can see that we will not be doing the little discussions. <laughs> the second one is resistance, which is the flip side. We are always trying to get rid of things that we don't like. And so it's both grasping after wanting something to be nice and pleasing and lovely and pushing away this thing that we don't like. If you feel yourself pushing against the anything, if you feel this sense of push, like it's not, you know, I want it to be like this, or I want this, or I want that, this kind of energy that 
push, pull energy. This is the dukkha. It's mental. It is not the actual experience that you're having. It's the mental papancha about that experience that you're trapped in. And what the Buddha wanted us, I believe, to see, if you're going to be liberated, is you have to begin to see the pushing and the pulling that's actually happening. The wanting, the shoving, the this kind of way that we either grasp after something beautiful that's not here or resist something ugly that is here. Something we don't like that's here. That back and forth is this enjoyment that happens with the mental. But there's uh, five other ones that are a little different. So the push and pull we can begin to see. That's something that we deal with all the time. It's hard to see, but we deal with that all the time. Like, don't like. But another obsession we have is over views, our God-forsaken opinions. Oh, my God. We are living in the craziest world right now because everybody's opinion is based on the news they happen to watch. And the news that they happen to watch tell them this. And I'm telling you. It is crazy out there because everybody believes that their opinion is true and factual because they got it off the news. I mean, they've read it in some journal information. It is crazy. I cannot tell you. I mean, I listened to... um that black scientist, that black guy that's so good. I just love listening to him. Yes, that's it. When when Neil Grassi says there are objective facts, these are the facts, I believe it. But here's the problem with that. If you don't believe in science, you don't believe that. That just becomes an opinion. And many people do not believe in the way we talk about planets and science and the coming together of all kinds of information. They just don't believe that. And I don't know. I can't say I'm not. I don't know what he knows. I just believe what he says because he sounds very smart. (laughs) So I believe it. But there are many people who do not. And many people would come to the Buddha to try to get the Buddha to explain what happens after death. What happens when we die? What happens? What's the real meaning of life? And they would ask these deep, profound, opinionated view type questions. And the Buddha would not even answer them. He would say, that is irrelevant. That is a stupid question. But we're not going to answer that. He would just blow it off. You could be in a, uh, he's given a talk to some 500 people and somebody would come up and ask the Buddha the meaning of life. And he would say, that's irrelevant. Next question. (laughs) No, just like I'm not even, he wouldn't even deal with it because there's no 
It is a cycle of obsession that we get trapped in. Cycle of obsession. It's the views, this opinion, these beliefs, the mental papancha of it. If you believe that something should be done about the homeless situation, then act upon that. Do something. But the proliferation of the thoughts that we should do something about the homeless situation, that is the obsession. That is the mental obsession that keeps us trapped in dukkha. This constant arguing about what we believe. When the Buddha was pointing towards action, do something. If you believe in something, do something. Be connected to it. Find a way to, to, to live it out and be a part of it. It's not that you don't have any views about what we believe in life, but there's no point in just proliferating over the views that we have as if our views are better than someone else's views, which goes to the next one, which is conceit. There's this comparing mind that decides something is better than worse than, uh, or the same as. There's this judging mind that judges things as good or bad, right or wrong. And there's this fixing mind that, that always sees a problem that needs to be tweaked and fixed. And we get obsessed over, is this the same? Is my sit the same? Was it like, well, last yesterday it was like this, and then today it's like this. Oh, I had a good sit. Because it was peaceful and blissful. I had a bad sit because I was a distracted by it. Or I just get bored. Or this idea that something uh, is wrong and needs to be tweaked. These are mental obsessions that are part of our natural minds. They are ordinary. All of these seven things are ordinary. They arise with the experience. So as soon as I see something, my comparing mind automatically compares it. If I see a coat that I like on the, on the computer or that I see in the store, I compare it to what my other coats look like. Do I think this will work? Do I think this will be a better coat or a worse coat? Do I, I mean, that's how I decide whether I'm going to buy it. Is this better? Is it worse? Is it the same? This nature of mind is normal. But the obsession is the place that we can begin to see that I'm not really considering, do I even need a coat? I am comparing it automatically. And if I figure it's better than, I'm going to buy it without even considering if I need to buy another coat. So this, this uh, conceit is another obsession over also ourselves, who we are. Are we living up to everybody else? Am I as good as everybody else? Am I worse than everybody else? I'm not as good as everybody else. Am I equal to everybody else? Also, this kind of constant comparing ourselves is another mental kind of obsession that we get stuck in. Uncertainty, this worrying about the future the mind can get very, very obsessive about worrying about the future as if the mind can fix the future. 
So something comes up, anything, we don't know what the outcome's going to be. You go to the doctor and they give you that look. Oh, we're going to take some tests. And then all of a sudden you're holding this, we're going to take some tests. What do we need tests for? Why can't you just look at it and say, this is what it is so I can go home peacefully? Well, we'll schedule some tests. And then, of course, the tests that you're going to schedule, they take some two months before you even get there. And this obsession over what's going to happen in the future, what's going to happen with the economy, what's going to happen with my job, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's going to happen. The, the distinction here is not that we don't plan for the future. It's the obsessive worrying about things we cannot control. This is the, the, the mental enjoyment that happens. So we have a job. We need to save some money for the possibility that there would be an economic downturn. We don't know, but there could be. So we're not going to blow all our money right now. We're going to try to see if we can't save a little bit out as best we can. If we can't, then we are going to spend the money we have on whatever we owe right now. And that's it. And we can hope or maybe consider or plan or see if we can get a job that creates more income, whatever that looks like. But the constant worrying about what will happen and this uncertainty that is very much a part of life that we can get uh, obsessed over uncertainty when uncertainty is the nature of the way we live. We all think we're going to walk out of here, go get in our cars, catch the bus, whatever, and go home. We don't have any idea that we could get hit by a car or something could happen. We could go home and found out that somebody in your apartment building kind of let the fire go and I go back to my house and there's no building. It's because in truth, we live in constant uncertainty. But we have a mind that obsesses over trying to create certainty. And that obsession is what creates dukkha. It creates the second arrow. Two more. We have a passion for becoming. We get obsessed over, it's sort of tied to um, the pleasure, but we're always obsessed with um, bringing things into being. I want this. I want this to happen to me. I want this to be in my world. This constant obsession that we have in trying to make things come into existence. And it's the difficulty is not that we don't want to plan our lives out and, and look forward to the future and fix things, uh, you know, like try to go to school so we get a certain uh, training, so we get a certain kind of job. It's, it's not that that is not it. What I think the Buddha is pointing to in this obsession is this um, 
this obsession that we have to have with the results. So we take away all sense of trust and faith in the moment. And instead, we try to force the results that we want because we think this result is the thing that needs to happen. I can, I just remember uh, this constant battle, especially like a trial lawyer, you're constantly wanting to win. We have way too much arrogance to, to accept the possibility that we could lose. And so there's this constant wanting to win, 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 win. And trial after trial, you're wanting to win and the other side wants to win. So both of us are begging to God to be on our side so we can win. And there's this constant stress that you are in a pressure cooker to win, win, win. And when I started practicing, I started practicing right when I became a lawyer just to settle down some. But as I started my practicing and and the trial work began to coincide with each other, what I gave up was the need to win. That's what I gave up. I wanted to win. I never gave that up. So it was always about the winning. But what I gave up was this requirement that I had to win. So if I lost, I prepared all my victims that there could be the possibility that we could lose and be prepared for that. I just started realizing that if I prepared for the possibility that I could lose, that the loss, if it should come, was not going to knock me off my feet and I'm going to be dejected and feel like I'm totally messed up and I'm just such a failure, which is where I would go if I lost and I needed to win. So instead, I wanted to win, but I didn't need to. I could tolerate losing. And that is this kind of accepting where you're at and not needing to control the outcome, the becoming, the constant need to insist that the world be the way you want it to be. And um, the last one is this passion of ignorance. And to me, the passion of ignorance is that we can hear, we can hear the Dhamma, we can practice it, we can even have a thought when we're in the midst of one of these other six passions or obsessions. Maybe I'm in an obsession here, but we won't do anything about it. We will just stay on the course and continue with that obsession. So there's a way in which this passion for ignorance is this, this, uh, habit mind that will not practice in the midst of seeing something where practice should be. And that's why I started thinking of dukkha as a gift, as a grace, as a coming into alignment with God or the sacred, something holy, something that's outside of my um control, that if I begin to look at 
anytime I was obsessing or having some kind of difficulty that I was in the presence of God. That's the way I would think of it. But you could think of it as you are in the presence of the sacred, something holy here. This is not just, I don't like that. It's not just some irritant. It is a great gift that we have stumbled upon that it would bring me to this willingness to start practicing. Because it's only in the moment that you're in the obsession that you could actually begin to get yourself out of it. You can't get yourself out of an obsession listening to a talk about obsessions because no matter how inspiring that talk might be, it never got me. I used to go listen to Rodney and I was like in love with that man. Like, oh my God, I believe I can do it. I want to jump up and say, hallelujah, amen. <laughs> That's the world I came from. And I would sit there listening to these Dhamma talks and I am just like overwhelmed with That's what I'm going to do. All week, I'm obsessing over all kinds of drama, upset, angry, uh, dealing with dukkha constantly, but no practice. And it wasn't until I started telling myself, this dukkha is sacred. This difficulty right here in this moment is where the possibility of everything that I was inspired about this is where it shows up. It's not going to show up in the, the great TV movie kind of scenes where we're overwhelmed with compassion and love and oh, so beautiful. It's not going to show up there. It's going to show up when it's all nasty and foul and we're pissed off. And that moment right there is where this possibility of liberation happens. So the last thing I want to say is, when the Buddha described this, he used this word called, uh, I don't know Pali, how to pronounce Pali very well, but it's Anuaya, I guess it's like Anuaya, something like that. Anyway, the Pali word that he used to describe the obsessions, the definition of it is to lie down with right? Lie down with. So what it means is, is that our minds lie down with these obsessions over and over and over and over and over. That's what it does. It's not just that I don't like the guy's yard. It's that I keep telling myself over and 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 over in this mental loop over and over, the mind will never stop telling me that this guy's yard is wrong. Never. And that's where that enjoyment comes. Because every time the mind says, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, my body feels, oh, this is wrong. Oh, more pain. Oh, more pain. This is wrong. This is wrong. And I keep feeling the second arrow constantly. This is what the Buddha was trying to break because I can't control what this guy does. Now I have figured out 
if I put my blinds there, I don't see it. But every once in a while, I will take the blinds down just so I can begin to hear this. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Just so I can begin to see it. You can take something simple and actually practice with it on purpose. One good way to do this is put a ticking clock next to your meditation bench. Because that ticking clock is going to drive you crazy. (laughs) And that ticking clock also becomes this kind of like, can I just let the clock sound be here? And sometimes you will, and sometimes you won't. Sometimes you'll be like, "Ah!" and sometimes you'll be like, "Ah, it's just, that's just what, that's just the clock. Just ticking, ticking, ticking. So this, this kind of, finding little things that irritate you, but not try to get the irritation away, but use that irritation as a way to learn to work with irritation and be with it. So you're not enjoined with the irritation. You can feel sometimes you're enjoined with it and you're all irritated with it. And sometimes you can feel the thing that irritates you, but you don't have to do anything about it. And you practice. We have to actually practice with it. And we don't need to be in the depths of some kind of rage in order to do that. We can pick and choose things we're going to practice with on purpose just to get us uh, stirred up. We can notice our opinions. You can watch the news and, you know, you are going to be irritated. So you can watch the news as a means to practice with all the things you don't like and begin to see that as opinion. That is opinion. That is not a fact. It's an opinion that I'm hearing meaning that there may be factual experience, but I'm not having that. I'm hearing someone else's opinion about something. And instead of getting caught up in the opinion, you can just begin to see what is the actual experience of, you know, hearing something that somebody did. The, the, the thing that I'm pointing to is, that this dukkha that we are working with this month is not, um, it's not just learning how to deal with the difficulty of being human. It's not just the, how do I learn to bear the pain of life? It's not that. That's not liberating. Learning how to bear the pain of life is not going to liberate you. It's not even liberating because sometimes you can bear it and sometimes you can't. So there's no liberation in that. That's just resilience, skill, capacity. Maybe if you're feeling good, you had a good breakfast, you're wide awake, you don't care if it's raining. But if you're already grumbling, you're already late to work, then going outside with the rain is just going to make it worse. So this is that's just capacity to be able to bear difficulty. 
what the Buddha was pointing to is the disentanglement of that mental obsession about the things we don't like, about trying to get the things we want, making everything nice and perfect. This, this entanglement with that is where the Buddha was saying our liberation lies. Because if you're not entangled with it, then when joy comes, good things come, you can experience it, enjoy it, and let it go. Things come that are difficult, you can experience it and enjoy or deal with it however you can, but you know you can let it go. That this coming and going of impermanence that we talked about last month is all intertwined with dukkha. And the next month, we're going to talk about this non-self and the, the, how all of this comes together in this uh, emptier way. We can let go of this requirement that we have to fix our lives. We have to fix everything. We have to make everything perfect and right. And instead, we can begin to see that some of it we have some control over. But most of it, we don't. So some of it, we can come together in our lives. But most, we have to just be with the experience of pain and ride that through and be with the experience of pleasure and let it go. I think I'll say one last thing. I really believe that this notion that the mind has, our ordinary mind has, that difficulties and pains and and, uh, struggles, that it's a problem to be fixed, something's wrong to be fixed. Every time we fix our problems, fix them, get it right, get our way, Make it work. Every time we just push and get it right. I did it so much. I was, I mean, I was smart and I was, I'm quick witted. I could think on my feet, all my problems. I could solve them really quick. It does not work. In fact, if I could go back in time, I would not solve all the problems I solved. Because every time I solved a problem really quick, it just set me up for the next problem. It's like an itch when you're meditating. You can scratch. And you can think, okay, I'm going to scratch this one and that's it. But you are in for it. It's the same way. Every time we solve a problem, fix it, we win, we got it right, we did it, we controlled it. We are setting ourselves up to believe that the next time the problem comes, we can do the same. And we just keep believing. We, we are the ones that control everything. And we miss the opportunity to see for ourselves that if we don't do anything, don't do nothing, let it be. We miss this glorious opportunity to see 
that things rise and they pass away on their own. We do not have to be the one to fix it every time. That things change, things, spaces open, spaces close, things come together, they fall apart. All this kind of life, this is the organic nature of life, comes and goes. And we want to see that. We want to learn to see that we can actually trust ourselves to be steady with this ebbing and flowing. And we don't have to actually control everything in order to be happy. That is liberation. That's the freedom that I think the Buddha was pointing to. So let's sit a moment here. Let, we'll let this kind of settle into your minds. Settle into your hearts a little bit. Let's see if anyone has any questions. Have you guys ever thought that birds are sitting there listening to us talk? Because sometimes I think they're sitting there like listening to us, like what we're saying, the same way we're sitting here listening to them. Because I know they hear, so they must hear us. But we probably sound like... (laughs) So... Let's just see if somebody has. Yeah, come on. Um, I really liked this um, teaching. This was really, uh, I, I kind of feel like the same way that you were feeling. It's like, I get it. I, this is doable. I can do this. And, and I feel like some aspects of it, like maybe over recent years, um, it feels like I've, I've, um, been able to do some of that, letting go of things that I can't control, et cetera. Not always, but, but I think that it was interesting the way that you started this, where you were talking about like the excitement and the enjoyment and you were just so happy and you're like over the moon. And I, and I know that that's what, that's not what you're saying. And that's not what your uh, monastic friend was saying was that you have to let go of that happiness and, and joy. But I guess I still wanted to ask the question because for me, <clears throat> like um, I live on my joy. Like I'm a, I have a lot in the past. I've had a lot of joyful, joyful moments. Um, but like during COVID and like with certain medications, I find that things have gotten like flattened out a bit. And that is probably one of the biggest things that I miss. And so I guess I, I just want to, clarify like when you're talking about this like you can still experience joy and then knowing that it's going to knowing that it'll uh 
you know, move on to something else. And especially with you being such a joyful person, like, is there, do you feel like there's any loss of those, those heights because you know that there's going to be a fall because you know that it's temporary? Yeah, I don't think so. I think what the difference is, is that if you give joy too much prominence, then when you don't have joy, then it feels like something's wrong, like you've lost something. But if you recognize that I'm not going to ever lose joy, it's always going to be around, it comes and goes, then even if I notice that I'm not experiencing a lot of joy, it does not mean I do not get trapped in that obsession that, oh, it's gone. I got to find a way to get it back. And I stopped tying joy to things going right. So I experience joy. I think it's why I'm such a joyful person now. I experience joy just as an experience itself, not as things are going good, so I should be joyous. So even as difficult as the memorial service was, I was so happy because there were so many people with me and I was so connected. That joy isn't tied to the actual experience of something. That's what I think I let go of is the, I think that's what he was pointing to. If, if I treated oh, we get together, we're going to spend time together, it's going to be great, then I'm tying my joy to conditions being a certain way. And he could be in a very foul mood and not really be in the mood to talk or have any fun or we're not going to go eat. No, I don't want to do that, Tori. Let's just spend, you know, maybe half hour together and then I got to go. And then all that joy would go away as if it's tied to things being a certain way. That's what you want to let go of. Because the joy itself, you can cultivate that as a phenomena, the way we cultivate metta, the way we cultivate compassion. It's not us. It is all around. And so that joy you can experience in a world that's full of a lot of pain. There's a lot of joy going on all the time. That's what I would look for. Yeah, thank you. I I think that that really hit home because I think I very much felt like something was wrong because I didn't feel that as much. Right. So, but yeah, it's that, not. But that's because, you know, the medication itself, right, conditionally can take <clears throat> that joy away. But, yeah, no. When you are sitting here and we're talking, you can feel my joy. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to generate your own joy you can learn to feel the joy that comes from someone else. And we, as human beings, we just feel each other's energy all the time. And so it's learning, like, um, I learned this, uh, just like open some doorway to sympathetic joy. Watch comedies, the kind of comedies you like. Not the kind of comedies I like, because I like romantic comedies, but you may hate those. (laughs) But you might like uh, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin comedies, because they were hilarious. You could like any kind of comedy, but find some comedies to look at and begin to laugh. 
and learn to feel the joy of other people. That's where you get it from, is learning to borrow other people's joy and not tie joy to just about something good's happening to me. Thank you. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, so <go> yes. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, I wanted to go back to the thing about the arrows, and I had a thought while you were talking about. I, that's a great, like, kind of simple breakdown of the idea. But then I thought when you were talking about the second arrow, like, okay, so the second arrow. Oh well. If, if the second arrow is optional, maybe I'd like to not have the second arrow. Is if you want to not have the second arrow, is that the beginning of dukkha? Like, is the um, desire to get to escape the second arrow? Like, is that the beginning of dukkha? I think the 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 the, the beginning of dukkha is the second arrow. Dukkha that the Buddha was pointing to is that second arrow. But the first arrow, what arises when we get hit with something that we don't like, one of those five things, when we have something in our lives that's sorrowful or some uh, decay happens, something ends, that we lose something that we wanted or something that we, you know, we got to deal with something we don't want to deal with. Or we, something we really liked ends, you know, or, or we don't get our way, whatever it is. One of those five. That when that happens, co-arising with that is a mental proliferation about that. The mental proliferation is so mm-hmm. instantaneous that this is the nature of what we're practicing with. So if if we try to say, okay, I'm not going to have that second arrow because clearly that's the problem. It's not going to happen like that. It happens too quick. It happens almost immediate. The better way to look at it is when the more realistic the way it is, is you will catch yourself obsessing about one of those five. And in that obsession, you will feel the stress and the dukkha. You will feel this resistance, this pushing against reality, this don't like, this trying to make life a certain way. That right there, instead of somehow or another getting your way and fixing it, you want to think of that obsessing, that pressure, that pushing as being in the grace of liberation. And in that moment, just see if you could let go of the obsessing and see if you could feel into the difficulty that you don't like. Mm -hmm. Do you see? Mm -hmm. So you won't catch it before the second arrow. Mm -hmm. You will catch it in the midst of the second arrow. Mm -hmm. But allowing that midst of the second arrow to be there, like this arrow is not 
the bad thing, this arrow is actually the thing that's going to help me begin to see the nature of dukkha. That's the way to hold it. That way, the arrow itself is very much the gift of wisdom, practice, sacredness, that gift right there. But the way you're talking, the way you first asked the question, that's the way I looked at it. Oh, it's all about not having that second arrow. And I kept trying to not have any mental papancha around things I didn't like. But really, I'm just faking it. I'm trying to bear down and be, oh, I'm okay with this. I'm okay with that guy's yard. I'm not. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing is not to try to force yourself to pretend like you're okay with something you're not. But use that realization I'm not okay as, okay, let's see what I'm obsessing about. What is it about this I'm not okay with it that I am so caught in? And can I let it be that I don't like it, but I don't have to do anything about it? Mm -hmm. So that's why sometimes I can raise the blinds and just look and feel that, "Eh, eh, eh." And just let it be there so I can practice feeling that don't like and and let it be there because I cannot go clean up his yard. Even if I could, I wouldn't because it's too much junk out there. <laughs> so sort of like that is a perfect example of being with something. I'm not going to make myself like it. I'm just going to learn to be with the discomfort of not liking it so that I can just begin to let it pass. And what ultimately happens most times is I eventually just get tired of looking at it. And then I can leave the blinds up and I can walk through the house and I stop looking out the window. But sometimes I'm always orienting towards, you should clean that yard up. He should clean that. What is he doing? Is he bringing more junk out there? That's what I end up doing. But I keep practicing with it because it's such a great place to practice with not getting my way, dukkha, all of it. You see? Yeah. So that's what you want to use. You want that second arrow to be the thing that you notice to help you see you're obsessing over something. That seems like an area where meditate, like meditating regularly suddenly like seems really important because then you would catch it, like notice that you're obsessing, like notice, oh, oh, this is, this is what's happening. I'm doing that thing again. Meditation would be the place where you will feel that obsession Mm -hmm. and sit with it. Like I do with the yard, Mm -hmm. you, you're going to feel anxious, sleepy, distracted, you're practicing letting it be like that and noticing what you're obsessing over. Mm -hmm. But the feeling of obsession Mm -hmm. as a practitioner with very little practice, you still feel that obsession more than most. That's what Buddha was pointing to. We feel that obsession more than most. Because before practice, before we ever set any amount of time, we just dealt with our obsessions. We just pushed and pushed and pushed. But now we can feel it. We don't necessarily do anything about 
without it because we don't practice. It's that, that seventh one. We still have this passion with ignorance. But more and more, you will begin to be with that difficulty and let it be there. And it's okay that I'm struggling here. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Let's just see what happens if I just let this difficulty be here. Thank you. Welcome. Right. See all the people out here. We should more of it. We should come here and be here because this is where it is. <laughs> Follow up question. Um, yeah. I'm sitting in pain because I sat on Saturday, Discovery Park, meditating for a couple hours and then went and ran on the beach without stretching. And um, when I came back, the place where I was sitting with a friend, all of a sudden there was um, we were doing an online meditation and had this whole picnic set up. And all of a sudden there was two people sitting right near us talking really loudly, like just one log away on the entire beach of Discovery Park. <laughs> and, and my friend was napping. So I was like, well, maybe I'll just sit. And I'm sitting on the log just in a lot of pain and just thought, well, maybe they'll leave. Maybe I should go talk to them. They're going to wake her up, all this stuff. And I just sat and tried to like make the meat leave with my mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we do. They actually did. Oddly enough, a moment later, they just moved further away as if they heard me. And I didn't, (laughs) but I was really rehearsing. Like, how can I go talk to them without it being? They probably didn't hear you, but they probably saw you. (laughs) They could see us for sure. And I think my question is, and we did get to see a lot of birds. There was eagle and a hawk or a blue heron, all sorts of things down there. Highly recommend it for a meditation spot. But my question is about those moments where you're thinking, okay, I could let go of this obsession about these annoying people. They don't get it. They're ignorant, whatever. Maybe they don't even see us, but they could see us. How do I let go of that? And then also move down the beach, you know, like, well, how do you guide yourself in your life around uh, maybe in your case, you can't move easily, right? Like that's a much bigger obstacle, but I could have, we could have walked down the beach. I could have talked to them and asked them to be quieter or move you know, we're in a society, we can do things. Yeah. We, we all came here, we took effort to get here. Um, we didn't just sit, you know, so I, I guess that's my I think dilemma what, is like, how do we in those moments of movement or not? <laughs> yeah, does that make sense? I think what, what we are doing as practitioners in the Dhamma is exactly what you're pointing to. So there is no moving down the beach or staying there, grumbling about them being there, accepting them being there. All of that is all righteous. There's no wrong in any of it. There's no right in any of it. It's all practice. So it's more about being willing to see what happens if I be with this, and then what happens if I can't be with it? Then what does that feel like? What do I learn from that? If I move down the beach, what does that do? The idea is that nothing you do, nothing that we do is the right way to do it. But you will learn what practice is all about if you move down the beach. You will learn if you don't move down the beach, 
if you stay there, if you don't stay there. You really will learn when you've pushed yourself too much on sitting and when you haven't. I mean, you just learn it all. The, the point that the Buddha was pointing to, from my perspective, is learning, is discernment. One of the qualities of Dhamma is that it encourages investigation, which is, called, which is the um, uh, aeposical. So aeposical is a word in Pali, and aeposical means encouraging investigation. So what that means is, he said that the, the Dhamma was timeless. It encourages investigation. This idea that whatever moment in time you're at, in whatever circumstances you find yourself, if you hold that experience as practice, then whatever you do, however you relate to it, whether you can or you can't, is going to tell you a little bit more about the nature of dukkha a little bit more about this nature of grasping after one of those five things you're going to see. So it's almost like you may have missed that you got your way and they left, right? So when they left and you got your way, what happened? But that getting your way means that the next time somebody else comes up, you're going to be trying their best to send them the energy to them to get them to leave. And they may not leave. So there's a way in which getting your way is both a gift so that you can see what happens when you get your way and you can understand the nature of why the Buddha would say one of the places of dukkha is not getting our way. Because every time we get our way, it reinforces to the mind that we will get our way the next time too. And, and then when we don't get our way, we struggle with it. So all of this is part of your practice. That's what you want to hold all experience, all phenomena. And does that kind of make sense if you're trying to help someone too? Because the person napping, I almost like got up and to go get these people to leave so that they could nap. But that's kind of the same like I'm it's the same kind it, of thing but they're gonna learn from not napping right that's right well in either that it's it's still the, the that still seems obsessed over getting your way or this uh or the, the whole thing is framed in this resistance and this wanting it to be a certain way but the if you're practicing with it if you're just noticing what's happening and you had more particularity than you may think because you noticed all of these little details that were happening. All of that noticing is what you want to begin to see because if you go outside in just a regular park and sit there for just a few minutes, what happens then? And is there something that happened that you missed because you were obsessing over all these other things? All of these things become uh, more, it's, it's the interest that gets us to just stay with whatever was happening. So to me, those people that were sitting there were actually, um, in Tibetans, they call them dons. They're like uh, Dhammapalas. They, they are encouraging you to stay in your practice. 
So you spent so much time right there with them and not lost in daydreaming. You were probably with your pain more. You were probably with the whole moment much more because they were there talking. And so there's this appreciation for seeing that, oh, because they were here, I was able to actually pay attention more. Unless they start throwing rocks at us, then I'm probably just moves. <laughs> yeah. You'll still be paying attention a lot more if they start throwing rocks. <laughs> oh, we got to go. Oh, dang it. I love talking about the Dalma. So, but I see it's 9.01. So you guys probably already noticed it was 9 o'clock. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of weeks and... Uh, I think when I come back, I think next week is the um, the memorial service. So we're just going to have a special kind of ceremony for people who have lost uh, loved ones and uh, connecting with that. And uh, it's all part of Dukkha anyway, the sorrow and limitation of it. And then uh, I'll be back the following week to start this uh, anatta and uh, this non-self. So I look forward to seeing you all. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being online. Uh, I hope you have a good week.